All right. Again, I invite you, please turn to Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And we'll stop there. So that is Romans 1, 16 through the end of the chapter. Now, where we left off last week, we were going through uh, verses 16 and 17, which uh, is, I think many people consider to be Paul's theme statement. So again, after uh, you know, introducing himself in the letter and kind of giving his intentions and what he wants to do, he jumps right into what he wants to cover throughout the rest of this letter, which is the gospel of God. And he, you know, last week we looked at how he's not ashamed of the gospel of God because the gospel contains power. It contains an inherent power unto salvation. It changes the wicked heart into a heart that loves God. It changes a dead sinner into one who is made alive in Christ. So why should he be ashamed? Well, I mean, like we looked at yesterday or last week, we're ashamed because oftentimes we don't believe that the gospel has this kind of power or we doubt that the gospel has this kind of power because it doesn't seem like just speaking forth a message of a Jew who died on a cross 2000 years ago can change anybody's life. But that's the, that's the point. The point is that God works through these, quote unquote, foolish means to accomplish his will. And then we also looked at how salvation is for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and for the Greek. It is a message for all 
people. And now we're going to pick up here in verse 17, where we see now that in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, again, I'm not going to go over this like we did last week, but we talked about the righteousness of God. We talked about the law of God. We talked about works of the law. A lot of that was just sort of trying to lay the groundwork about uh, over the, some of the things that we're going to see as we go through the, the, the letter of Romans here. But what we're seeing here in verse 17 is that the gospel is a revelation. The gospel is a revelation. In other words, that word revelation, um, it, it's the Greek word apocalypto. We get apocalypse from. Now, when you hear the word apocalypse, you think of weird, bizarre, end times things, you know, disaster, because that's essentially what the book of Revelation is titled. It's a t- it's titled an apocalypse, but it's it's a revelation and it's a revelation of what will come things to come soon, as it says in the book. Well, here, the gospel is an apocalypse in a sense. It's an it's an apocalypse or a revelation of the righteousness of God, because in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. Now, this concept of revelation will be very central to Paul's thought throughout uh, this first section of the book of Romans, which really covers from uh, verse 18 in chapter 1 all the way through verse 20 in chapter 3. This is Paul's first part in this letter where he deals of the righteousness of God, how it's revealed against sinners and against the unrighteousness of men. And this idea of revelation is very central to what Paul is going to to say in these verses. So as we go through them in the time that we go through them in the future, pay very careful attention to this notion of revelation. But the question before us now is how does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? Now, if you remember from last week, we looked at the righteousness of God in two senses, a subjective and an objective sense. The subjective sense of the righteousness of God is God's own righteous character, his own uh, righteousness, his own moral character, his own justice, which is perfect. Uh, and, And the gospel reveals that side of God's righteousness in that sin is offensive to a holy God and is deserving of punishment. That's how the revelation of the righteousness of God is through the gospel. And and God will punish sin. It'll either be on the backs of the sinners or it'll be on the back of the son, Jesus Christ, who bears the judgment of God for our sin. God is righteous in that he punishes sin. However, the righteousness of God also reveals that in, uh, in, in the gospel, he saves his people by punishing another in their place for their sin, his one and only son, Jesus Christ. In either case, sin is judged. In either case, sin is punished. And God's God's righteousness is then therefore revealed as he righteously judges our sin. Now, if we take the righteousness of God in the objective sense, that is how we can stand before God as righteous, as, uh, as, as how do we stand in front of God, how do we appear before him, or right standing before God, then the gospel reveals God's righteousness in that he, what he demands from us, which is perfect uh, obedience to the law of God. We talked about that last week. There's no, you know, there's no prize for second place. There's no, you, don't, you, know, you don't get a prize if you get 99% on the, on the exam of the law of God. You have to get 100% on that exam. That's what he requires, perfect obedience. Now, the, the righteousness of God is revealed in that what he demands of us 
he also graciously provides to us in Christ. The perfect obedience to the law of God that Jesus Christ himself fulfilled in his lifetime is then given to us. So then we now, through the gospel, by grace through faith, have a right standing before God. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see sinner. He sees one who is perfectly righteous in Christ. And that will be the thrust of Paul's uh, comments here in uh, Romans 3, 21 and 22, where he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest, revealed, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's Romans 3, 21 and 22. Being manifest apart from the law means it is unobtainable through the works of the law. That's why we belabored that point last week. You cannot obtain this righteousness by your own works. It's just impossible. So when Paul says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it, he means that the righteousness through faith was testified to in the Old Testament. The law and the prophets, the writings of the Old Testament, testified to this fact that righteousness comes through faith. And then God's holy and righteous anger towards sin is also revealed, as well as God's mercy toward lost sinners in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And then the gospel is a revelation, and it is a revelation, as Paul says here, from faith to faith, from faith to faith. This is a somewhat enigmatic phrase. Perhaps another way of translating it is beginning and ending in faith. Uh, In other words, that the Christian life is all of faith. The Christian life is all of faith from beginning to end. There is no, okay, I believe, I have faith, I'm now justified. Now the rest of it is I do this all in my own power. It's just my own effort now. You know, I, you know, I, I got over the hump. God got me over the hump. I, I know I couldn't get justified by the works of the law, but now I'm going to be sanctified by works of the law. That's not how it works. It is from faith to faith. It begins in faith. It ends in faith. The faith that justifies us is also the faith by which we're sanctified. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So in that verse, Paul is saying, look, I'm crucified with Christ. That's justification by grace through faith. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ now lives in me. And now the life I live, the rest of my life, is now a life in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. It is beginning and ending in faith. The life of faith is all-encompassing. It is by faith that one initially receives the gift of salvation and eternal life. And it is also by faith that one lives each day, which is why here at the end of verse 17, Paul says, the just shall live by faith. This is a quote from Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. The one who is justified shall also live his life, her life, by faith. So as we move now into verses 18 through 22, this whole section here of, if you're using the New King James, you may have a heading title that says, God's Wrath on Unrighteousness. We're now moving into the body of the letter. Okay, Paul, he's said his hellos. He's he's sort of, you know, inclined, you know, he's indicated his intentions to visit them. He's laid out his theme statement 
And now he's getting into the meat of Romans here. This is the meat of the letter. Now, just a little bit, some introductory comments before we actually get into verse 18. If the gospel is good news, which it is, right? That's what the word literally means. It means good news. If the gospel is good news, we need to know what the bad news is. Right? I mean, it, good news is only good if it's in relation to something that's bad, right? That's why, like, you know, the whole, I've got some good news for you and I've got some bad news for you. The good news is always better when you hear the bad news first. Yeah, give me the bad news first, right? That's why we ask, give me the bad news first so the good news will be better. Now, Paul has just finished saying that the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. And we discussed that phrase for righteousness of God. Uh, like we just did a little bit earlier, can mean his righteous character. It could also mean that that standing that we need to have before holy God. And we just also talked about revelation, what that means to reveal, to disclose, to bring the light, to make fully known, and how this is central to Paul's thought. And it's going to be central through this section here that we're going to go over. Now, as we get to this first major section of Paul's letter, we're going to see the revelation of God's righteousness in his wrath against sinners. If you were to break Romans 118 through 320 down, it could you could probably break it down to three parts. There's some debate on this, but uh, you can break it down to three parts versus you know, the rest of chapter one, verses 18 through 22, which is before us this morning. We're going to look at and see God's wrath revealed against the unrighteousness of Gentiles, the unrighteousness of people who are not Jewish. And then in verse uh, chapter two, verse one, all the way through chapter three, verse eight, you'll see God's wrath revealed against the unrighteousness of Jews, of the Jew, Jewish people. Now, there's a lot of debate in this section here as to whether or not this whole section is speaking about Jewish people or if it's speaking about Jewish people and maybe a, a you know, like a just an uprightly moral an outwardly moral person. We'll we'll discuss that when we get to those to that section. And then the rest of chapter 3 from verse 9 through 20, you're going to see God's wrath revealed against all people. Because all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But again, before we can understand just how good the good news is, we need to see how bad the bad news is. There's an interesting story uh, from R.C. Sproul. Uh, He was teaching on a campus one day. And he's, he was in a hurry to go from class to class. He was a little late. So he's in a hurry to go uh, to get to his next class to teach. And on the campus, a, uh, an enthusiastic, zealous person who is uh, evangelizing out there approaches R.C. Sproul and says, Are you saved? And R.C. Sproul didn't know what to think because he was in a hurry. And he just kind of blurted out, Saved from what? <laughs> you know, in other words. You know, so, I mean, that's the whole point. It's like the good news, are you saved? You know, it's only good when you understand what the bad news is. That's what the question was. Are, what are we saved from? What do you mean? Saved from, from what? You know, I mean, right now I feel pretty safe here. I don't think the, the, the walls are going to come tumbling down on me. I don't think the floor is going to open up and swallow me up. So I don't think I need to be saved from anything right now. But the point is, is that you don't understand how good the good news is until it's put in relation to how bad the bad news is. And that's what we're going to see here in verses 18 through 32. We're really only going to get through verse 20 today. So, But that's what we're going to see. Uh, as previously stated, this section, we're going to see Paul discuss 
how the righteousness of God is revealed in his wrath against the unrighteousness of Gentiles. Now, what are you going to see in this section is a devolution, a devolution, not an evolution. If you look at the theory of evolution, um, in part, it states that mankind has evolved from lower forms of life through mutations over countless millennia. And this concept of evolution has also been applied to other fields of study as well, to cosmology, the evolution of the universe, to anthropology, the evolution of man and society with one another, and sociology, the evolution of how we develop in social settings. You see this also in the study of religion, which typically falls under anthropology. Uh, It is believed that monotheism, the belief that there is only one God, is, is at a later stage of human development than, say, polytheism, the belief that there are many gods. The prevailing theory goes that man developed from sort of animalistic, spiritualistic, tribal-type beliefs in worshiping rocks and trees and stars and animals, etc., that they evolved into that, into a polytheistic group of people that sort of they just, instead of worshiping plants and rocks, will just transfer this up to various gods in a pantheon somewhere. And then from there, it went to a belief called henotheism, which just means you believe in one tribal god. So the Jews had a god, the Canaanites had a god, the Assyrians had a god, etc. You know, you believe in one god, but you, there, you know that there are multiple gods because each tribe of people had their own god. And then finally, monotheism, the belief that there's only one god, which the Jews, the Muslims, and the Christians, that's we are monotheists. You could probably posit a further stage, which would be the belief in no God at all, right? I mean, if, if you notice the progression is from you're worshiping things to many gods to one God, you know, then the, the logical progression would be then no God at all. That's the secular atheist, the rejection and the belief of any gods. They would say that this is the top of progression. Well, the truth of the matter is that the Bible, the biblical worldview, tells a completely different picture. Not only did mankind not evolve from lower life forms, mankind was originally monotheistic. That's how God created us, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind in his image, male and female. And then in Genesis 4, which is even after the fall, we see worship being offered to God in the sacrifices of Cain and Abel that they offered to God. Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to God. And at the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, we read in Genesis 4, 26, and, and to Seth, to him also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So this idea of worshiping the one true God. It is only after generations, uh, after the fall, as mankind more and more rejects the truth of the one true God, that we see this devolution. So monotheism devolves into henotheism, the belief that each tribe has their own God, devolves into polytheism, devolves into uh, animalism, you know, this belief in worshiping animal spirits and so on. And of course, atheism, which denies belief in God, is described by the psalmist in verse 14.1 as uh, foolish, right? The psalmist says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
And that's what we're going to see here in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Because people suppress the truth about God, we're going to see a devolution. People will turn to idolatry, and the result of that is a moral disintegration of society. So now as we look at verse 18, we see that the wrath of God is being revealed. Again, there's that word, revelation, apocalypsis. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now first, let's take a look at that phrase, the wrath of God. The word there, wrath, orge, sounds like ogre. (laughs) But uh, it appears 36 times in the New Testament and is usually translated as wrath, mostly wrath, sometimes anger. But it overwhelmingly refers to God's wrath, his anger against sin and his anger against unrighteousness, which is precisely the point Paul is making here in verse 18. Now, when you hear the word wrath, what what comes to your mind? (laughs) You know, maybe you think you're like the guy on the road, road rage, you know, you cut me off, you SOB, you know, or, or you think of, you know, like those angry parents at sporting events, and when when their kid's team starts losing, and they and they start losing it, and then they start fighting with other parents and stuff. Or maybe you you know if you're a fan of the comic books, like I, maybe you think of the Hulk, you know, you know this kind of angry rage monster kind of thing going on here. That's not what Paul's getting at here. God's wrath is not selfish. It is not arbitrary. It is directed for a purpose. The wrath of God is neither some placeholder for karma or bad luck. It is an expression of God's personal anger against sin. Consider just a couple of passages here. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 6. You don't need to turn there. You can if you want, but you don't need to turn there. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, all those things that Paul just mentioned, Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. A similar passage in Colossians 5 through 6. Paul again writes, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. This almost sounds like like a... repeat of what he just said, but, you know, uh, it's, that's what Paul is saying. The wrath of God is, is revealed against our unrighteousness, and he lists several examples of our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. Now, God's response to this is not arbitrary. It is not capricious. It is measured. It is a rational and just response to our sin. Now, you may ask, well, I thought the Bible says God is love. 1 John 4, 9 says God is love, right? How can God be angry? God is supposed to be loving. Well, yes, it does say that. God is loving. God is love. And he is gracious. And he is merciful. 
You see this in the fact that we don't drop dead the, the instance that we immediately commit a sin, right? This is a testament to God's grace. The fact that God suffers long over our sin is a testament to God's grace. However, what would we think of a God who didn't punish sin? Again, Paul will address this later in Romans 3, but the point is that the wrath is an attribute of God that is taken alongside all of his other attributes, the same as love, mercy, and grace. Again, what would we think of a God who didn't punish sin? I mean, the Bible tells us to take no vengeance on man, leave it to God, because you know, God will avenge us, right? Well, if God doesn't avenge us, then what's the point? We might as well take revenge for ourselves, right? We might as well set our, settle our scores uh, you know, in our, on our own, right? No, if, if God did not punish sin, he would not be just. He would not be just. Now, just as an aside, we'll look at this in more detail when we consider Romans 2. God told Adam and Eve that in the day they ate of the forbidden fruit, that is, in the day that they sinned, that they would die, right? That's what he says. In the day that you eat this fruit, you will die. Yet we know they ate, and they didn't immediately die. What did God do? Well, he clothed them to cover their nakedness. And then he kicked them out of the garden temple of Eden. Now, note that he clothed them with animal skins. In other words, something did die as a result of their sin. It wasn't them. Animals were sacrificed, in a sense, and their skins were provided to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. God graciously provided a substitute who died in their place, like he does for us in Christ. And the same goes for us. If the wages of sin is death, then why aren't we dead the moment we sin? Why are we still here? Again, God in his grace often forgoes wrath and punishment. He doesn't excuse it. In fact, we'll see as we get to Romans 3, Christ bore the full wrath of God for our sins. But the point I'm trying to make is this, that whether or not God's wrath is revealed at the moment we sin or uh, at, at a later date, the truth of the matter is that there will be wrath. It will be revealed. Now, this wrath of God is revealed from heaven. When we, looked at all, uh, when we looked at all the times the word wrath was found in the New Testament and said that it overwhelmingly refers to God's wrath, it is also mainly referred to the wrath that will come in the final judgment. Typically, this wrath of God is referred to the final judgment, where he will judge sinners eternally for their sins. But here we see in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed now. Or in that point in time, even now, that's, that verb is in the present tense. It is being revealed now. In other words, sometimes the sin of mankind gets so bad, so evil, so vile and wicked that God judges that sin now. And we see examples of this throughout the Old Testament, right? The flood. What happened during the flood in Genesis 6? God, it said that God looked down on humankind, saw the wickedness in their hearts, and it says in Genesis 6 that he grieved that he made them and then vowed to judge mankind for their sin. We see that wrath again revealed in, the, in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. The wickedness of those two cities brought the wrath of God on them at that point in time. 
We see this in the people of Israel in the wilderness. Korah's rebellion as the people were, were going through the wilderness. Korah and his group of followers decided they thought that they were better than Moses, Aaron, and, and Miriam. So they decided to try to usurp their authority. And then God judged them by swallowing up into the earth. We see this with the sin of Achan in Judges. When they go to, you know, the Israelites go to defeat the city of Ai, Achan sort of gathers some of the wealth for himself. They were supposed to devote everything to destruction. Achan gathers a little bit for himself and says, well, they're not going to miss this, right? I'll hide this under my tent. Well, God knows, and his family was judged. Again, the accumulated sins of the people of Israel after they lived in the land for many, many centuries, their, their sin their covenant unfaithfulness, their idolatry, eventually forced God to judge them in, uh, by sending foreign nations to judge them and uh, export them to other areas. Now this judgment either comes in the form of direct wrath of God or mediated through others. The point is that God's wrath doesn't always wait for the final judgment or the day of the Lord to be revealed. It can be revealed even now. And it is revealed even now. And rest assured that even though the wrath of God can be revealed now, doesn't mean that it also won't be revealed later. Sin against God is an offense against an infinitely holy and just God. And therefore, it deserves infinite judgment. And of course, this idea of being revealed from heaven is essentially saying that the source of this wrath is coming from heaven. It's coming from where God dwells. Heaven is where God dwells. We could talk about that more later, but here we'll just leave it at that. Now it says here that the wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So this answers the question, why is the wrath of God being revealed? Why is God's wrath being revealed? Because we are ungodly, unrighteous, and we suppress the truth. Now when these two words are put together, ungodliness and unrighteousness, It essentially refers to all of our thoughts, all of our deeds. Ungodliness refers essentially on the vertical axis, if you will. So if you think of sins horizontally and sins vertically, ungodliness is is sins against God, essentially. It is uh, displayed in sacrilegious words and deeds, uh, in lack of reverence for God and his hallowed institutions. It is the vertical dimension of sin, sin against God. Unrighteousness means acts that violate the standards of right conduct or the, or the quality of injustice. This is horizontal dimension. It is sin against others. So if, this, if the commandments, the Ten Commandments, can be summed up as Jesus does, to saying, love God and love your neighbor, then ungodliness and unrighteousness would be then exact, the exact opposite of that. It would be lack of love for God, lack of love for neighbors. And it says... This unrighteousness is expressed in the phrase of those who suppress the truth. We're going to expand a little bit when we get to verse 19. But this general idea of suppression, it is to prevent, to hinder, to restrain, to hold down. I heard one person describe it like this. It's Think of trying to, you know, you take a beach ball, an inflated beach ball, and you try to keep it under, submerged under some water. You, you have to actively try to, you know, suppress that because the ball wants to keep popping up, right? So you are pushing that sucker down, making sure it stays underwater. You are suppressing. That's the idea here of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The truth keeps wanting to pop up, 
By, 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 by our ungodliness, by our unrighteousness, we are keeping it down. And that's what these wicked people are doing here. They are suppressing the truth. Well, the truth about what? Well, now we get to verses 19 and 20. The truth that the ungodly and unrighteous are suppressing is what God has revealed to all of mankind through general revelation. Again, that word revealed. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Namely, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The truth is here that they are suppressing is what may be known of God. And the reason it is ungodly and unrighteous is because what may be known of God is manifest. It is clearly seen. It is visible. It is open. It is evident. And why is that? Because God has made it evident. He has made it visible. He has made it clearly seen. God has shown all of us what may be known of God. Now, just a side note here. We can't know everything there is to know about God. Okay, that that should go without saying, but we can't know everything there is to know about God. God is infinite. We're finite. But what God does reveal to us, we can truly know. In a sense, it's sort of like, you know, as an adult, you're trying to communicate to a three-year-old. A three-year-old's not going to understand most of what you say, but you, so you have to sort of speak in baby talk to them so they can understand. It's kind of what God does to us in Revelation. Calvin calls this, he says, God's revelation is sort of like his baby talk to us because we're, you know, in a sense, babies. We can't understand everything there is to know about God. But this idea of general revelation, uh, theologians often distinguish between general and special revelation. Now, they're both revelation. They're both a making known. They're both modes through which God reveals himself to mankind. But they differ in what is revealed. In general revelation, we see this in creation. That's why here it says, because God has made it known through what has been made, right? That's what he says in verse 20. For the creation of this world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. General revelation is seen in creation. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 19.1. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Or in Acts 14.17, nevertheless, he did not, that's God, did not leave himself without a witness And that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Again, what we see in creation is is a revelation of God. And that's what Paul says here. And that's what he means when he says in verse 20, the creation of the world has revealed God. We are it is we God is clearly seen through the creation. He is understood by the things that are made. Of course, we'll get to this later, but general revelation is also seen in human conscience. The law of God, Paul says in chapter 2 of Romans, is written on our hearts, which is why even unbelievers have a sense of what's right and wrong. It can be a flawed sense of what's right and wrong, but they do have a sense of what's right and wrong. The point being, the point being when God created the world and everything in it, he, 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 like a master artist, he signed his name to the work. So if the entire creation were a giant portrait, in the corner it would say God. (laughs) 
and the date would be whenever the date would be. The whole creation exhibits the fingerprints of God. It is unmistakable. But as Paul says in verse 18, we suppress this truth in unrighteousness. And also in verse 20, Paul says that we are without excuse. And this notion of being without excuse should chill everyone to the bone. Because in reality, then, it's saying that there is no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as a person can say, I don't believe there's a God, that he hasn't given me enough reason to believe. Because the universe and everything that's in it is enough reason to believe that there is a God. You look at the, the, the marvel of the human body, it is enough reason to believe that there is a God. You look at the vast expanse of the universe, it's enough reason to believe that there is a God. You look at the, the wonderful mysteries of the microscopic world, it's enough reason to believe that there is a God. It's a bold statement, but the Bible is clear. God has clearly revealed himself in creation to the point that unbelief is not an excuse. It is not an excuse. It doesn't matter what culture you came from. It doesn't matter what culture you came from. Christianity is not a distinctly Western thing. It started in the Middle East, right? I mean, it started, it was a Jewish religion. It was, you know, and, 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 it, ex, it expanded from there. But there's no such thing as an atheist. And unbelief is not an excuse. When God's wrath is revealed against our unbelief and, and our suppressing of the truth, no one is going to be able to say, hey, God, why are you punishing me? I didn't even know you existed. No one's going to be able to say that. In fact, uh, famous, he's dead now, but famous British philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell once said, if I were to appear before God and he said to me, why didn't you believe in me? I would respond, there was simply not enough evidence. The actual truth of the matter is that there is plenty of evidence. Mankind just suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. He suppresses the truth because he doesn't want to believe that there is a God. Because if he believes there is a God, then he has to answer to him. Right? That's the whole point. Well, we'll stop here for this morning. And next week, we'll pick up in verse 21, and I suspect we can probably finish the chapter by next week, <laughs> but uh, we'll see. <laughs> but anyway, let's uh, close with a word of prayer, and then we'll get ready for worship this morning, okay?